Romans chapter 1, we're going to read verses 22 through 25. In fact, we'll back up to 21, just to back up in our flow of thought. Verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, once again, as we examine the middle of this uh, passage that in so many ways is so dark, Father, help us to praise You for the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ. But Lord, yet let us have a clear view of our own wickedness apart from Thy grace. Though none of us progressed as far in the paths of sin as we could have, yet we would have done so if You hadn't prevented us. And Lord, we thank You and we praise You for intervening in the life of every single person who's believed in Christ. Lord, that You came after them when they were yet dead in trespasses and sins. You loved them anyway. came to redeem them. Lord, help us as we meditate on the greatness of our Savior, as we think about the the still residing wickedness of our own heart. Lord, as we consider the, the state of the fallen world around us, help us to understand how to be better equipped to reach them. Arm us, Lord, with the truth to see past an age of lies and deception, to boil things down to their fundamental root causes and deal with them there, to be effective witnesses for Christ by our mouth and by our life. In Jesus' name. Amen. I suppose it would be helpful to some extent because I was gone last week and uh, because this really, as we talked about last time, is one long flow of thought beginning in verse 18 all the way through the end of the chapter. And so backing up just a little bit to establish where we were, what we were talking about is the wrath of God that is not was revealed or will be, but the wrath of God that is currently being revealed against guilty rebels uh, the world over. And if you'll remember how it's being revealed is in those three key statements we find in the rest of this chapter. God gave them up, God gave them up, and He gave them over. And we talked about the landslide of iniquity that follows when mankind decides in his heart to say thumbs down to what God has revealed about Himself, and He steps down that hill and a whole host of other sins follow. But where it began was a decision of the will. Because of mankind's response to God's natural revelation, God executes wrath against them, not because they don't know, but because they do. And what was talked about in that passage is not even the Word of God written and inspired at all, although that's vital, but what was talked about was natural revelation, namely the created world or cosmos, the universe is an ordered system, and the things that are made that we witness in creation down here on the earth. You remember the psalmist said there's no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. He recognized way back then that the glory of God is manifested in creation so plainly that mankind, just based on that, can be said to be without excuse. 
I think it's a wonderful thing for us to remember as parents, and most of us know this. Most of us like to spend time in the outdoors. But be mindful to deliberately call attention to the glory of God with the things that you see. Think of the lessons you can teach by rocks and trees and skies and seas, by flowers, by animals, by clouds, by stars. But we have to purpose in our heart we're going to do it. How truly did Isaac Watts write? There's not a, not a plant nor flower below, but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by, or by order from thy throne. Wasn't that a manifestation the other night with that thunderstorm to sit and meditate on the glory, the glory of God? But yet that, was, that wasn't even his little finger of power manifested on this earth. So what happened? They, they glorified him not as God. They refused to give him his rightful place as deity, as authority, as Lord. And they became vain in their imaginations because they were not thankful and their foolish heart was darkened. I think it's amazing for us to try to remember that just the extent of God's revelation to the, the extent that will condemn so many people. You ever thought about the fact that multitudes of people in hell right now, or, or some that will be in the future, when they stand before God on the day of judgment, there will be multitudes consigned to the lake of fire who never heard the gospel, who never had a Bible, but they're guilty by what God showed them through creation. Now I'll admit, my humanness jumps up and says, but... But but the bottom line is, though I don't understand it all, my responsibility is to stick to what God has revealed about Himself and what He's shown about His character and not try to twist it according to human reason. That always, always leads to disaster. I guarantee you, if you have a problem with that doctrine, you do not love people more than Jesus Christ does. You do not have more compassion on this fallen world than the Savior who came here and bled and died for the sins of mankind 2,000 years ago. And though there's so many things we don't understand about the condemnation through natural revelation, don't ever let it make you question the character of God or His desire to save all people. He is omniscient, not you and I. God hath showed it unto them, He says. So this morning we're going to continue in this line of thought. I'm going to talk to you on the topic of the descent into idolatry. And I want to begin, I want to begin by pointing out it is indeed a descent a step downward. You know, it's in vogue today, and there's a renewed interest in ancient cultures and religions and civilizations, and I suppose even more so in places like here in Alaska of, of Native American culture and tradition. And I'm not against culture so far as culture is concerned, but where those things cross the line and do idolatry, we have to recognize them as what they are. They're a manifestation of what's taking place here in Romans chapter 1. I mean, I'm all for freedom of conscience. I don't think a government should legislate against any religion. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit silently and say all religions are equal and all paths lead to God. That is absolutely not the case. Whether it's ancient or more recent or current, it doesn't matter. All things must be tested by the infallible Word of God. All right, what is idolatry? Well, Webster defined it in his 1828 dictionary like this. This is a good definition. It's the worship of idols, images, or anything made by hands, or which is not God. Idolatry is of two kinds. The worship of images, statues, pictures, etc. that are made by hands, and the worship of the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, stars, or demons, angels, men, and animals, or an excessive attachment or veneration for anything or that which borders on adoration. 
I mean, we tend to think of little carved images as idolatry, and it certainly is. And in its strictest definition, it certainly encompasses that. But the bottom line is idolatry is anything and everything that takes your heart away from the truth of God. And there's all kinds of things that fall under that category. All of us have heard the tired old analogy of religion being sort of like a mountain. This would be someone like Oprah Winfrey's view of so-called Christianity. There's a great mountain at the top. God resides, and all around that mountain there's various pathways of different religions and isms, and all of them, if a person holds to them sincerely enough and exercises enough faith, no matter what they believe, eventually they're going to end up at the top of the mountain with God. Anybody ever hear that? You know, there's a tiny bit of truth to that, only here's the issue. They have their pathways going the wrong direction. The God of the Bible is indeed at the top of a mountain, and from up there He reigns supreme. And there is no challenge, ultimately, to His authority that will stand. And up that towering mountain is one pathway that ascends it, and that's the exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. But all around that mountain are indeed pathways, but they don't lead up the mountain. You know where they lead? They lead down the mountain. Away from God, there's pathways. There's, here there's one marked atheism. There's one marked universalism. There's one marked deism. There's one marked open theism. There's one marked pantheism. There's one marked panentheism. There's one marked dualism. There's ones for Judaism and every other ism you can think. But you know what they all do? They all lead not to the top, but to the bottom. It's a descent down into idolatry. And you know, here's the bottom line about the devil. He really doesn't care which idol you pick as long as you pick one. You realize Satan's well-schooled in what he does, and he doesn't forget? Think of how many lives he's destroyed through various idolatrous channels, and he gets very good, he's a student of human nature, at knowing which is going to appeal to which person. You think, you see, I have three random people here. I mean, okay, one of them is... A very, very brilliant. He's got a high intellect. His whole youth, he's told about how much he's going to do to improve the world he lives in. He's valedictorian of his class. His IQ is way up high on the charts. He becomes a Rhodes Scholar, and he earns his PhD, and he becomes a lecturer at the various colleges. All right, now which one of those isms do you think Satan is going to use to go after that guy? Well, the pride of his intellect is likely going to lead him away into atheism, a denial that God even exists, and to put his own brain upon the throne. Okay, let's say you have another person. Well, this person, just by nature, is one of those that, that is a little bit more moral. We know people like that, right? They seem like good people, not by God's standards, but by ours. This person maybe shows a little bit more zeal than their fellows in things of religion, and is a little bit more proud of their own intrinsic righteousness, and someone like that ends up at a convent or a monastery, worshiping a piece of bread inside of a box and praying to hallways full of idols and denying themselves the basic pleasures of life, and that's how they live out their existence. Okay, then you have a third guy. This guy's always been on the wrong side of the tracks. He comes from a tough background. He's the guy that always won the fights. He's prided himself on his bad boy image. Well, he grows up and he stays on the wrong side of the tracks, and he joins a group like the Hell's Angels or something. He loves to flaunt his hatred of the law and his despising of authority. He's the guy in the mosh pit at the front of the heavy metal concerts, flashing symbols to Satan and proud of his worship of demons. 
But do you know, all three of those people I just mentioned, fundamentally, at their core, are walking down the same mountain away from God. See, the fruit on the tree may be different, but the root is the same. They have descended into idolatry. And notice in this passage, the first outward manifestation of this inward corruption. You remember verse 21? Took us kind of behind the scenes. In verse 18, we saw that mankind actively suppresses or holds down the truth of God. And verse 21 shows us how. Because that when he knew God, what happened? He glorified him not as God. He wasn't thankful. Okay, That was going on inside. But notice what happens on the outside when idolatry takes root in the heart. The number one manifestation is what? It's the mouth. The mouth. Professing themselves to be wise. Hand in hand with this descent into idolatry is an inflated view of numero uno. A person's intrinsic value, their purpose, their accomplishments, their abilities, and especially their own perception of reality. And as is always the case, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now where does this professing themselves to be wise come from? I mean, is that mentioned anywhere else in the Scripture? I mean, we could take all day and show instances where, where that's used. But you know, people who don't know God and have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are still of who? They are of their father, the devil. You can go to Isaiah chapter 14 and see where the devil began his career as Lucifer with five statements that he thought about in his puffed up heart, all beginning with the words, I will, and culminating with what? I will be like the Most High. What was he doing? He was professing himself to be wise, independent from God. How about the Antichrist? I mean, what will he be known by? Well, among other things, Daniel 7, verse 8, he's, he's mentioned as a mouth speaking great things. Daniel eleven thirty six, And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation shall be accomplished. The Antichrist is going to be one satanic big mouth waltzing around this planet, exalting himself against God and professing himself to be wise. You know, in the Garden of Eden, when Lucifer tempted our first parents, remember what he told them? And that day your eyes will be opened and he shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. What did he tempt them with? You'll have the right to profess yourself to be wise. Psalm 2, the raging heathens. It says, they're saying, let us cast away their cords. By the way, their cords is a reference to the Trinity. They hate Father, they hate Son, they hate Holy Ghost as revealed in the Bible. But how's that manifested? It comes out of their mouth. Like the Antichrist, they may seem to prosper till the indignation be accomplished. In Obadiah, that little book, in just one chapter, but in verse 3, here's what's said about Edom, the descendants of Esau. Remember, they dwelt in a place called Petra. It was a red rock canyon, and they had houses carved out of the rock, and they thought in their own heart, nobody can ever take us down. We're in an unassailable, impenetrable position. We're invincible. God says to them, The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. Tell me, what do you find when you're dealing with a random person 
outside of Christ, when you begin to probe their guilty conscience and God begins to reveal to them what they really are, what do you find? You find self-justification. You find self-righteousness. You find self-defense. That may work for you. That may be your truth. That's not what I feel in my heart. And what are they doing? They're professing themselves to be wise. They are the authority. They are the source of wisdom. Their perception is infallible. And God's doesn't matter. That's the fundamental problem with an idolater right there. But you know, there's a dichotomy in this verse and a very, very sad irony in the second half. Uh, professing themselves to be wise, what happens? They became fools. While their mind is consumed with thoughts of their own sufficiency, and while their mouth is literally billowing out cubic yards full of hot air about their own native brilliance apart from God, the very same time, they're becoming the opposite of what they profess. They're becoming fools. And that word was used just a couple of verses earlier, but there it was an adjective. Their foolish heart was darkened. Okay, that was to describe them. Now it's used as a noun. Okay, that was what they were acting like. Now this is what they are. It began with a foolish heart being darkened, and here it ends with becoming a fool. Lock, stock, and barrel. And that's the same thing that's echoed in other verses that we know. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are ways of death. What's that saying? Man professes himself to be wise, and in the end, what does he do? He becomes a fool. The fear of the Lord's the beginning of wisdom. In other words, profess yourself to be wise, you become a fool. Now, do you remember the definition? We talked about that last time. The definition of the word fool is used in the New Testament. It's not a flattering word. It means lacking mental sanity. It literally means denying the fundamental aspects of reality. It's like living in a parallel universe where truth is relative and does not matter. And God says that's what happens when somebody goes into idolatry, talks about their own wisdom, at the same time they're being turned over to God's definition of insanity. Really, the manifestations of this are legion, both in and out of so-called religion. I was reading earlier this week that the United Church of Canada is in kind of a quandary. They long ago rejected the infallibility of the Word of God and the dogmatic holding of Bible doctrines. But you see, they have a problem. In 1997, Greta Vosper became pastor of West Hill United Church of Toronto. And the fact that she's fulfilling an unscriptural role that God has forbidden her really doesn't matter. But they also have a problem with the fact that she's an atheist. Now, if you think the, word, the phrase atheist pastor is a little bit of an oxymoron, uh, join the club, so do I. In fact, back in 2001, she began teaching a mixture of atheism and Greek mythology in her church. And these poor, blind, sad, wandering sheep have actually put up with that and listened to it for the last seven or for seven years beyond that until 2008 when she banned the Lord's Prayer in her church meetings and 100 of her 150 members finally walked out. But you know, the denomination still did nothing about it until recently she wrote a letter to one of the executive secretaries of the province. And in that letter, she's explained to him how faith in God leads to violent behavior and massacres. And she quoted as evidence one of the recent Muslim massacres that took place. And of course, she makes no distinction between the God of the Bible and faith in Him and the God and the false God, Allah. But you know, you know how they're responding to this? They have a wide investigation 
to determine whether or not she's being faithful to her ordination vows. What do you think her response is? Here's her response. Here's her literally out of her mouth. I do not believe in the God referred to as God. Using that word gets in the way of sharing what I want to share. This is in so-called churches. That's just one manifestation of exactly what's being talked about in this verse. Okay, we're so wise, we don't need Bible doctrine. We don't need the infallibility of the Word of God. We don't need dogmatic authority. We, 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 we're wiser than that. We're beyond that. And now they're having discussions like whether or not an atheist should stay in the pastorate. Absolutely amazing. That's just one example of what's said in the next verse. I mean, how is this foolish heart manifested? The fact that they became a fool, how is that shown? Well, here's how it's shown. With an acute case of create-your-own-god-itis. That's what it becomes. It becomes Baskin-Robbins religion with 31 supposedly delectable flavors. You just choose the one that most appeals to you. Most of us remember the sad phrase from Burger King in the 1990s, have it your way. Well, that's how most people want religion today. That's not the God I worship. Well, sir, the God you worship doesn't exist. Except as a figment of your imagination. Okay, verse 23, what they do? They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. The rebellious heart of mankind hates the truth that God has revealed about himself. He becomes filled with pride, although he has one big problem, and that is that he is incurably religious. So he attempts to create a God after the lust of his own wicked heart. Now tell me, what could be better described as insane than weak rebels who live a hundred years at best, made of the dust of the ground, thinking they can reach their puny, defiled fist up into the third heaven and take hold of the invisible, omnipotent, thrice-holy God, pull him down to this polluted earth and remake him according to their own satanic desires. Is anything more insane than that? And I think we have to ask the question, why? Why would mankind do that? Well, this fallen nature hates a God that is incomprehensible and indescribable. By nature, apart from regeneration, we hate a God who is infinite, holy, and just, and who will by no means clear the guilty. We don't want a God that's distinct and set apart from all of creation and all that defiles, and a God who's a fearful judge to whom we must all give account according to His standards and His records. And so the members of this once noble and glorious race made in the image of God now take out their own hammer and chisel and upon the anvil of human depravity they began to hammer out a God that's made in the image of man rather than the other way around. A God they can comprehend, a God they can control, a God they can persuade. A God who smiles at iniquity, who is culturally relevant, who changes with the times, and who would never, ever condemn. Notice it says they change the glory of the uncorruptible God. Glory can be described a lot of ways, but really it's that which makes him unique. It's that which makes him dreadful and set apart. And he's called the uncorruptible God, meaning he cannot be tainted with sin and death. He cannot be brought down. Apparently, though, this is the biggest problem they have with the true God. Haven't you found that to be true? 
You talk about God's goodness, nobody has a problem. You talk about God's love, very few people have a problem. You start talking about God's character, His justice, His holiness, His righteousness, now they have a problem. Because they don't measure up, and they know it, and they want a new God. That's how it goes. Sadly, they change His glory for an image. Like corruptible man, one who's defiled by sin, whose judgment is skewed by a fallen conscience, and who doesn't run against the grain of this, this world system. Isn't it amazing that our great and powerful God condescended 2,000 years ago to be born in a manger in Bethlehem, to live 33 years in this wicked world to demonstrate, among other things, what true unfallen humanity looks like. And mankind responds by nailing Him to a cross. And now these same wicked rebels are constantly trying to drag God back down to earth only on their own terms. We don't like His coming the first time because all that did is show us more of what God was like and expose more of what we're like. We don't like that representation of God. The world would be happy if Jesus came back with an earthly father and a fallen sin nature so He could be just like them. But that kind of Savior could never save, could never buy us back. The manifestations of this are everywhere, and there's always been. I mean, not even mentioning the plethora of false religions. I mean, that, that really goes without saying. But, you know, this is what atheism is. Atheism is not, I repeat, not being against religion. Atheism in itself is a religion. Atheism is one way that the glory of God is dragged down to an image like corruptible man, and now man's brains and intellect are supposedly sitting upon the throne of the universe. And they're nutty enough to think that the uncorruptible God actually has to apply at the bar of human reason for the right to even exist. Well, I have news for these people. The Bible does not begin by questioning the existence of God, proving the existence of God, or explaining the existence of God. It begins by declaring the existence of God. And when this world is destroyed, and when all the created elements go up with fervent heat, and every single rebel is left suspended in space before the courtroom of the holy God of all creation, you know what's going to happen? It's going to be all about declaration and spiritual fact. And man's reason is gone. God. You think God has to ask us for a right to exist? How absolutely pathetic that is. How pathetic. Sadly, the same thing is going on in contemporary Christianity in America. Do you realize the Jesus that's preached in multitudes of Christian churches this morning in this country? are a Jesus that would have never been crucified because this world would have loved Him. It's a Jesus that blended the world system, didn't run against human nature, didn't expose wickedness and self-righteousness of the human heart. The Jesus they preach would have been wildly popular. He would have been truly knelt down to by Herod, who would have loved him because he was a fellow sinner. He would have wrote best-selling books and probably appeared in the Jerusalem Billboard 100 music chart. But that Jesus is powerless to save. What's happening? The contemporary church in America 
is changing the glory of the uncorruptible God and making an image like to corruptible man. And that's why you hear all the rhetoric about judge not and you're legalistic and don't condemn me and that's your truth and truth is relative and doctrine doesn't matter because the God you follow affects what you become. And your core beliefs and your, your doctrines that you embrace become the God that you worship. You better make sure you get it right. You know, I, my, my flight to Anchorage. You know, honestly, my, my trip began with a conversation I didn't want to have. The guy sitting next to me, a young man, began to talk with him. and You know, he's made a profession of faith. He was excited. He was going up there, among other things, to get some studio time because... He wants to become a Christian rapper. You know, this guy's idol is Lecrae, if you don't know who that is. Lecrae's recent album, a Christian so-called rapper, was debuted at number one on the religious chart, number one on the secular chart. The fact the world loves this guy meant nothing to this young man. And I'm honestly, I looked out the window and I said, Lord, I really don't want to have this conversation. Can't I just open the book? But I was compelled to ask. I started to reason with him. I started to ask him questions. And, you know, he candidly admitted, I forgot my Bible at home, but he's got his rap music. And I said, you know, you got your priorities a little turned around, don't you think? I think you left the wrong thing home. But his whole reasoning process was so dominated by the flesh. There's not one scriptural justification for the direction he's going. And he was totally resistant to any sort of loving Correction or questioning. You know what that conversation showed me? We don't have the same God. This young man's been sold a bill of goods. He's been sold an idol, a God who's made like unto himself, who loves this present world, who the world loves him, and who's powerless to change the sinful heart of humanity because he's just like them. I just want to make a couple of general observations concerning idolatry as we go through the rest of this verse. You notice, first of all, there's really no creativity. Someone has made the statement, the only truly original person was Adam. There's a lot of truth to that. You go through the list of idols men made, what are they like? Every one of them is either an exact representation or a blending of things that God has already made, whether in heaven or in earth. When's the last time you heard of an idol that was incomprehensible, indescribable, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, holy, loving, just, righteous, good, and infinite? When was the last time you heard of that of an idol? You don't. Because mankind hates that type of God. Well, he comes up with something else. It's a downward spiral. Okay, it begins by dragging God down to man's level. Okay, at least man's made in God, God's image. I mean, he's a little, little more intelligent than the animal kingdom. I mean, why not make a God like him? But it doesn't stop there, does it? It keeps going. Okay, an image like unto birds. I mean, at least they can fly. I mean, they're not earthbound. Does anybody really worship birds? Years ago, I was working for a commercial contracting outfit, and we did some work for the Alaska Native Cultural Heritage Center in Anchorage. And it was really kind of an interesting project. We, they used to have these buildings called Koskigs, and they were kind of an underground shelter buried in dirt, and so we they built these big 
you know, brick cinder block structures about 18 feet high and then built these these native cabins inside of them so they looked like they were buried in dirt, but they really weren't, so they didn't crush somebody and have a lawsuit problem. But every day for months as we drove into that job, uh, prominently displayed in front of what was going to become the visitor center was some massive uh, sculpture or something under a big veil just waiting to be revealed. And I was curious driving by it every day. I wonder what's under there, you know. Well, some months later, we went back there to see the place when it was finished. And there as we drove by, I don't remember how high, probably 15 feet, maybe more. This massive statue of a bird that I've seen my whole life growing up, picking french fries out of the Wendy's dumpster and eating fish guts on the beach out of salmon carcasses that we throw on the ground. And underneath the statue is a big placard that says, Raven the Creator. And thousands of tourists annually flock by this place to appreciate native culture and to express how they understand the diverse viewpoint. It would never speak against it, but very few look at that and say, here's Romans chapter 1 in living technicolor. Now let me tell you how they got there. Four-footed beasts. If you're familiar with the Assyrian Empire, capital is Nineveh. The Assyrian wing bull was all over the place, relief carvings. He was sort of a combination between a four-footed beast and a bird. He was a transitional period or something in mankind's idolatry. How about creeping things? You know, all of these could be documented. We really don't have time to do so. But all over the world, ancient and recent depictions can be found from groups of people worshipping about every animal imaginable. Dagon of the Philistines, he was a fish. There's people that worship rattlesnakes, turtles, lizards, praying mantises, caterpillars. There's even a sect of Hinduism today that worships cockroaches. Still today. They would never kill one. Thirdly, man has to descend from somewhere higher to get here. We've all heard the evolutionary model, right? You see a primitive culture and their viewpoint is they kind of ascended up out of the primordial soup. And really, to be at the place where they have at least a spoken language and can throw a spear and hit something every once in a while, I mean, they're, they're going up. But the problem is the Bible presents a totally different picture. Mankind was created in the image of God with perfect fellowship with Him, with a brilliant intellect... And after he fell, things went down. You know, very early in the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, we read about Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain, who were the fathers of modern agriculture, musical instruments, and working with iron and brass. Genesis chapter 4. Has it ever amazed you that Noah had the wherewithal with God's help to build a ship that rivals today's ocean liners in size and to weather that storm? You know, at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, one of the reasons given for God confounding the languages is to arrest the progression of technology from happening too quickly. God has ways of intervening and making sure His plans come to pass, doesn't He? But you know, it's not till Genesis 31 where we find the first mention of the idolatry we think of with Rachel stealing her father's idols. So in 31 chapters, you go from mankind perfect in the garden, mankind developing and working with metal, building a large ship to escape, and then down into idolatry. And everything else follows from there. No heathen, heathen, pagan, primitive tribe you see started there. 
Not one. The evolutionist will tell you they did. God says otherwise. The history of Africa is a tremendous case in point. Most of us are familiar with the pictures of the Egyptian pyramids from thousands of years ago. In fact, there's a recent debate going on once again of how these people moved such large blocks across the middle of the desert and somehow piled them up with such precision. You realize there's pyramids who the average space between some of the blocks is one-fiftieth of an inch. Can't even slide a piece of paper between them. That's the type of precision they had thousands of years ago, among a whole lot of other things. Okay, fast forward a little bit, just after the time of Christ. Africa became one of the major centers of Christian teaching and influence, and no one's really sure how. Simon of Cyrene, who was compelled to bear Jesus' cross, Cyrene is in northern Africa. At the day of Pentecost, there were those from Egypt and Libya about Cyrene that were there in the crowd, and they presumably went back. Acts chapter 8, the wealthy Ethiopian eunuch is converted on his way back to Ethiopia. So maybe one of those firebrands spread around, we don't know, but we do know this. The gospel spread in spite of intense persecution, and for centuries Africa was a bastion of Christian influence all over the ancient world. But you know, the candle began to flicker, and the flame started to go out, as it's done in so many other gospel influence centers afterwards until David Livingston became the first modern white man to traverse the continent. You remember what Africa was called in the mid-1800s? The Dark Continent. But it went downward to get there. That's what it did. All right, what's God's reaction to all this? Verse 24. This is the first of our three statements of God giving them up. It says, what does it say? Wherefore God also gave them up. You notice that word also? Here's what's being said. They gave God up. God finally responded by also giving them up. And what he did is remove some of the restraints against sin. You know, these barriers that they thought were a hindrance to their own pleasure and development were actually loving fences placed there by a good God to keep them from destroying themselves. And like a pack of stubborn mules that keeps kicking against the pricks, they keep fighting against this fence, and they keep fighting against God, until finally He says, enough. And He opens the gate. He lets them out. And what happens? They've rejected the God of holiness and sinlessness. They've begun to worship creatures, and eventually they began to live like animals, controlled by their own base desires. It says they dishonored their own bodies between themselves. The word dishonored means disgraced. This vessel that was made for the glory and service to the living God has fallen oh so far. And now so many are living on the level of an animal because of the choices that they've made. You know, there's always been a connection between idolatry and fornication. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. I wonder if we can even appreciate what he experienced coming down from 40 days in the glory cloud of God Almighty to descend back down that mountain after probably thinking, can't I just stay there? And he comes down and he finds the people have ate and drank and rose up to play. And the phrase rising up to play doesn't mean badminton and scrabble. It's a term of fornication. So Moses comes down from the presence of God himself 
and he finds this scene unfolding. No wonder he threw down the stones and was so shocked in the spirit. Fast forward a little ways to the year A.D. 52. The Apostle Paul comes to the corrupted port city of Corinth with a population of some 400,000 people. And there, prominently above the city, on a 500-foot hill known as the Acrocorinth, was the statue of Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and fertility, in a magnificent temple dedicated to her. And in that temple were no less than 1,000 temple priestesses, were really just religious prostitutes who led the way in the sexual seduction and perversion of an entire culture. You know, there were things ancient Corinth would make America today blush over. And America has plenty to blush over themselves. But it was into that culture, what did Paul recognize? There's one thing that's the power of God into salvation, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He didn't come in and try to refashion God to fit the culture and to be culturally relevant. He didn't come in and try to act like them to win friends and influence people. He came in and declared who God was and what God was like. And you know what happened? The power of God came down, chains of sin were broken, and a church was formed. And it was this same group. He didn't write to them and say, now don't you be a legalist. He said, be not deceived. Fornicators shall not inherit the kingdom of God. By the way, that's a message that needs emphasis today in our culture still. You follow that through the New Testament. Fornication is one of the flagship sins of an unregenerate world that claims to know God and doesn't. And he said, now I don't want you to be fooled by something. Someone who that's the pattern of their life, despite what comes out of their mouth, something is drastically wrong with their so-called Christian profession. And we live in a culture that's totally given over. But here's what we have to remember. The fornication rampantly in our culture that's being crammed down the throats of our young people in schools and in colleges is symptomatic. You know what it's symptomatic of? It's symptomatic of a people and a culture that has rejected the knowledge of God, formed a God of their own opinion and after their own lusts, and has been given over to dishonoring their own bodies between themselves. That's what's happening. This whole abortion issue, where uh, a woman's choice and health are pitted against the sanctity of human life, you know both sides of that really miss what's really going on. Abortion's not fundamentally about either of those topics. Abortion is about the sexual revolution and wanting to have my pleasure and dishonor my body with somebody else and I don't want any natural consequences for departing from the ways of God because God is now made in my image. I will do what I want and I will live according to my lusts like an animal and you're not going to tell me I'm going to face consequences. That's what abortion's about. That's the real issue in most cases. I'm not going to say all, but the vast majority. Alright, what's the product of this first phase of God giving them over? Verse 25. Okay, they change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the Creator. Okay, first of all, we see the turning of truth upon its head. We find a people that with straight face will tell you that good is evil and evil is good. And notice the word changed here, it's mentioned twice. They changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. They changed the truth of God into a lie. The word means to exchange. In other words, they traded it in for a new model of God that they liked better. How does it happen? 
Well, it happens as we documented. First, it happens in the will. Then it spreads to the heart and mind and thinking process. And eventually it comes out in their deeds when they live flagrantly in rebellion to God and dare Him to do something about it. That's where we are in this downward progression. Behold the devil's marvelous exchange program. Any person in this world can trade in the glory of God for an image made like the corruptible man. They can trade the truth of God in for a lie. They can trade an uncorruptible and undefiled God in for a model that is corruptible and is defiled if they want. Sadly, many have gone that route. Okay, where does it lead? Well, it leads to total confusion about who and what to worship. Look what happens. They worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator. You know, if you boil it down, there's only two classes of being in all the universe. There's created, and there's creator. And by the way, that's one of the best arguments of somebody who's denying the deity of Christ. There's no such thing as being half infinite or half deity. Either you're all God or no God. You cannot be in the middle. I heard a, a preacher say long ago, and it intrigued me at the time, but I think he's, he's speaking truth. He said, you realize Michael the archangel is closer in his intrinsic value to being like the scum on your bathroom floor than he is to being like God. And what he was illustrating is there's this vast chasm between things that are made and thing, the one who made them. But what happens is when, when idolatry descends on the mind, mankind begins to give his time, his effort, his energy, and allegiance to the elements of creation which were created for the glory of God, and he begins to elevate them as though they were God. June 26th of this year, an article appeared in the New York Times, and it was entitled, Saving the Cows, Starving the Children. And it was talking about recent legislation in parts of India that banned the possession and sale of beef and made it punishable by a five-year prison sentence. And of course, the point of the article was to, to take self-righteous Americans and to producing them a sense of outrage to do something about this because after all, we are better than that. In fact, they brought a picture. Maybe this will help some of the children, okay? Here's a picture from that article. And here's this poor deceived woman literally bowing down and praying to a cud-chewing cow. Okay, that's across the world. But we're more refined than that, aren't we? We're more cultured. I mean, this kind of thing doesn't happen in America. Let me tell you something. You take this woman's head and you stick a picture of Al Gore or Shirley MacLaine right there and this is an accurate representation of the direction of their life and how their mind works. The modern day environmentalist movement in America might be more culturally acceptable than going and kneeling down to a cow in the barnyard, but fundamentally it's the same exact thing. It's worshiping a creature more than the Creator. I mean, think about it. What would, what would make a person? Now, despite anyone's view on the, the very hot-button issue of the recent Planned Parenthood videos, what would make a person watch one of these and see one of these medical directors for this so-called women's health organization, and here she is cavalierly sipping wine and munching lettuce while she's explaining how to do a less crunchy abortion in her process of dismembering children and selling their parts for medical research, and the person can watch that and dismiss it 
as a necessary part of science and medicine and then turn around and become indignant because an American dentist accidentally shot Cecil the lion in Africa. How does that happen? You know that guy's in hiding, he's in exile, speaking through an attorney? Well, nutheads like this are spraying lion killer across the front of his house? Now, I'm not saying what he did was right or wrong, I don't know, but all I'm saying is this represents a serious priority problem. And this guy has death threats on his life killing a lion. And yet people aren't outraged about these other atrocities right before our eyes. In 1962, Rachel Carson wrote the infamous book, The Silent Spring, which predicted the death of the world because of human abuse. And of course, the book became a massive bestseller. And really, since that time, uh, she has become the undisputed mother of the environmentalist movement. I mean, she's nearly worshipped. She was featured recently in Time Magazine as one of the 100 most influential people of the 20th century. She is called an intellectual giant at the NASA Earth Observatory website. She's praised on the website of the Environmental Protection Agency, despite the fact her book is filled with myth and errors, which everybody knows about. The bottom line is a dark world loves a lie, especially when that lie has to do with pulling God down to man's level. So today we have quotes like this. University of California professor Kenneth Watt. Human beings as a species have no more value than slugs. Ingrid Newkirk, founder of PETA, the radical animal rights group. There really is no rational reason for saying a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. How about this one? Prince Philip of England when speaking before the United Nations in defense of animal rights. Here's what he said. He said, I wish I could return as a killer virus to lower human population. How does that happen? Well, this is how it happens. Amazingly, this spreads into the so-called religious realm, too. You know, today, major evangelical, especially broader evangelical leaders, are buying into this lock, stock, and barrel. And it's spreading like a plague in the so-called Christian churches. It's amazing. February 2006, 86 major evangelical leaders whose names, many of them you would know, they signed the Evangelical Climate Initiative, calling on evangelicals to treat global warming as a pressing issue and a major priority. In other words, forget the warnings that the world's going up in flames. Forget the warnings about the imminent return of Christ. Forget the centrality of the gospel to rescue men from the sinking ship. It's all about saving the planet and reducing greenhouse gas and fixing global warming. I like to tell people, they ask me, do you believe in global warming? I say, I sure do. It's just going to happen a lot quicker than you think. And it's going to be a whole lot hotter. The world's reserved on the fire. The great day of God Almighty. Mankind's not going to destroy this world. God will see true to that. Rob Bell, the very well-known, well-liked, and heretical writer whose books you'll find gracing most so-called Christian bookstores in his book, Velvet Jesus, here's what he says. The goal isn't escaping the world, but making this world the kind of place God can come to. How about this one? To make the cross of Jesus just about human salvation is to miss that God is interested in the saving of everything. Every star and rock and bird. 
Brian McLaren, probably the leader in the emerging church movement, in 2008 he hosted the Everything Must Change Tour. And here these people walk in the doors in the first sessions entitled Healing the Wounds of Our Planet. Everybody then joined in a song based off St. Francis of Assisi's poem Brother, Son, and Sister Moon. And then they got to the real show and watched a DVD by the Sierra Club which exposed the immoral mining techniques employed by big energy companies in West Virginia. Then they were treated to a song they all sang together about the rape of Mother Earth. Another session opened with a hymn of remorse. No remorse over sin, mind you. No remorse over rebellion against the God of heaven or the changing of his glory into an image made like corruptible man. It's a song of remorse bewailing the desecration of the animals and the earth. And today, if you're paying attention, you hear more and more big evangelical leaders spouting this kind of rhetoric. It's amazing. You know what they're doing? This is what they're doing. This is what they're doing. They are worshiping the creature more than the Creator. But you know, in this dark discussion, there's one ray of light that all of a sudden interjects here at the end of verse 24. Verse 25, I mean. They worship and serve the creature more than the Creator. And how is He described? Who is blessed forever. First of all, when we run into these attacks and assaults on the character of God, we need to be mindful as God opens the door of utterance, to take the opportunity to fix people's thinking about who God is and what He's really like. That's why I've said times already, evangelism begins with who God is. You cannot exercise proper repentance and faith until you know what the God of the Bible is like, at least some things about Him. It cannot happen. Evangelism doesn't begin with the love of God. It doesn't begin with the grace of God. It doesn't even begin with human sin because until you understand who you're sinning against, you can't understand the magnitude of sin. The reason so few people experience conviction today is because they have a God of their own imagination. And it takes seeing the God of the Bible to correct their perspective and show them what a depraved rascal they really are. And out of that, they're able to see the preciousness of the gospel and the blood of Jesus Christ. And they're truly converted. And you know what happens? Their life actually changes. They're not the ones standing and defending a sinful lifestyle. They're not the ones living in fornication and telling you to stop judging and being a legalist. They're the ones that actually follow the Lamb where He goes and manifest by their life that they've been made a new creature by the power of the living God. Secondly, though, the, the fact God's blessed forever. Here's what it's saying. Okay, Mankind has exchanged the image of God, but He has changed nothing. The sick part is the heathen raging think that they are actually going to succeed because they're led by their father, the devil, who's so blinded by his pride that he actually thinks he's going to win. But you know the marvelous truth? God's character has not been corrupted at all in actuality. Every single thing in heaven and earth below the earth, will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Every single person who's denied it in their will, who's changed the image of God, who's redefined sin, who's made their own religion, they're going to get one massive theology lesson that's going to be undeniable, but sadly for most, it's going to be too late. Aren't you thankful, though, that God's not sitting on His throne disturbed, wondering how this is going to shake out? hoping that mankind in the end votes him the right to exist so he can go on ruling things according to his own wisdom. I just want to close with this thought. We all have a fallen nature. Our tendency is to do the very thing I'm talking about here. Maybe on a more acceptable level. Maybe on one that's not so blatant. But you know, every time we harbor sin, unrepentant, do you know what you're doing? You're changing the glory of God into an image made like to corruptible man. When we refuse to repent, refuse to acknowledge our fault, refuse to ask for forgiveness, hold on to bitterness, any number of things we could mention. Live a life that denies who Christ is while professing to know Him. Any one of those things are a manifestation of a sin nature that still wants to change who God is. Make no mistake, if you belong to Christ, the chains of sin have been broken, but your nature is just as wicked as it's ever been. You have the power to stand against it now given to you by God, but don't think there doesn't reside in you a nature that wants to change who God is. That's why as time goes on, we as a people, as a church, as individuals, need to have our mind constantly cleansed by the Word of God so we don't unwittingly go down the same pathway. How many institutions do you know about? How many churches that were formerly good, taking a stand for Christ, preaching the gospel, training, training missionaries, training pastors, sending out Christian workers, are way down this road, and now they've made an image like corruptible man, and they've lost their sense of spiritual sanity, and they've lost the power to transform the hearts of people, because now they're just like the world. And they're preaching a Jesus who really has no power to transform because he's the same. If you don't think that can happen to you or me, you have another thing coming. This is going to keep us from that. Honesty and transparency with God is what keeps us from that. Because we're not immune. It doesn't matter what sign we put on the door. It doesn't matter what our creed states. The heart can be deceived and changed through the same process if we let it happen. So let's hold each other accountable. I hope we're growing in our ability to sharpen and admonish and edify one another. It's not just my job. A healthy church, we're all our brother's keeper to a point, right? But we all need to be teachable and approachable too. But may the Lord bless us and guide us and equip us bring people like this, whether in India or Manhattan or Helena, Montana, to see who God really is. The gospel is just as powerful, but it's the only message that's going to change them. And seeing God for who He really is is the only thing that's going to help. Let's pray. Father, thank You for telling us really things that we don't like to hear sometimes.
Thank you, Lord, that you are concerned with truth and that you do not change. Lord, that you love us enough to wound us at times, to discipline, to correct, to rebuke, to convict. Because you love us. I pray, Lord, you'd purge us of wrong views of who you are. We are constantly in danger of being idolaters somewhere. Lord, I wonder if there's one of us here who's not holding to some idolatry somewhere. We're so prone to wander. I pray, Lord, you'd preserve us. Preserve us from a haughty spirit that loves to point out others' faults. Preserve us from a naive spirit that refuses to try the spirits, whether they're from you or the devil. Help us, Lord, to love truth and to love the souls of people. And I pray, Lord, you would help us. Help us to rescue souls from darkness here. In Jesus' name, amen.